So SB35 is your fast pass. You go to the park with your fast pass, but all those fast pass rides are closed because they've been developed or the site isn't zoned. That doesn't do you any good. So you're going to go this up. That's a pretty good analogy. That's yeah. an excellent analogy. Very good analogy. I was hoping it would work. <laughs> Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. Uh, my name is Matt Levin. I'm a data reporter with Cal Matters. I'm Liam Dillon with the LA Times. And this is Gimme Shelter, the official first Cal Matters podcast. How are you feeling about that? I think it's great. You know, that's great. <laughs> that doesn't seem like a stirring endorsement, Liam. I, I love Cal Matters. We're at this beautiful view in the, where we're taping now of the, mm-hmm. of the Sacramento from the Cal Matters office. It's a, it's a lovely place to be. Today on the podcast, the policy of the package, the podcast you've been waiting for. We are going to, originally, what do we wanted to call this podcast, what? 15 bills in 15 minutes. And then we decided that was absolutely impossible. So maybe 15 bills in 20, 25 minutes. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, we are going to be breaking down the details of not all of the bills, but all of the notable bills in the package. We're going to try to get to all of the bills, uh, but... Often it's the details of policy that make or break whether policy will actually work, as we discussed on a previous podcast. Yes, very, uh, very apt of you. Yes, thank you. Um, a couple of housekeeping chores. If you can, definitely subscribe to us um, on iTunes and rate the podcast. I've always wanted to say that. Um, I am still working on whatever's wrong with getting this on Google Play. I promise within the next two weeks I will fix that. We are also going, after this podcast, we're going to have a kind of shift in schedule. Liam, do you want to explain why we won't be in the ears of our listeners every week? Yeah, so we're going to go every two weeks, and that's because we're kind of in an off-season here at the Capitol. I mean, nothing kind of gets started again until January, and so... You know, we're in the fall, and, and we're going to try to take some time, too, to, to, to delve into perhaps some deeper, deep-seated issues uh, with respect to housing and, and how the legislature deals with it. And that's what we're going to be every two weeks. And we also want to strongly tease the interviews that we have at the end of this particular episode. We had a very, very good panel. Liam, do you want to? Yeah, so we had uh, three sort of housing all-stars, if you will, in in Sacramento. Um, a Sacramento-based developer, Mia Kong, um, the uh, a housing policy person for the League of California Cities, Jason Ryan, and then Brian Augusta of the California Rural Legal Assistance Foundation talking about uh, the bills they liked and what they'll do and sort of what they see going forward and the kind of impact they'll have. And it was uh, pretty detailed and and, uh, and fun. And there were some laughs, you know? Yeah, yeah. We had some laughs. And good metaphors. And awesome metaphors. And it was a relatively civil conversation. Yes. No one, no one, there were no fights. No, no avocados thrown. We are going to skip our incredibly popular recurring segment what is it called liam give the people what they want the avocado of the week yes say it one more time avocado <laughs> it's the first O. that's what it is really yeah 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 well w- someone when someone, was the first so, time you saw your first avocado that's that's a great question because this is not something we had growing no, up in philadelphia no. they, they, we just had rocks shaped like shaped like avocados yes and we had to pretend they were avocados but <laughs> and hurl them at opposing sports teams <laughs> that's how it works in, yeah. in philly yeah but it was great because somehow i actually guessed i was from philadelphia uh after listening to the podcast which means i really feel connected to my roots that i haven't quite lost them yet again um yet another person moving to california from out of state and then immediately complaining about the cost of rent here that's me liam dillon uh we're going to skip that segment because we have so much stuff to talk about. We are, however, going to uh, talk about the one number of the week you need to know to sound intelligent about housing policy. And why don't you ask me, Liam, what that number is? What's that I'm number, Matt? Guy. That number is 56%. Why 56%, Matt? Um, try to sound less patronizing. Uh, <laughs> That is the percentage of California registered voters who considered moving out of their area because of rising housing costs. That's according to a poll, a UC Berkeley poll um, that got a decent amount of notoriety and media attention this week. As it should. Yeah. um, Kind of drilling down on some of the other poll results that I thought were interesting. So that 56% applies to all registered voters in their sample um, 70% of 30 to 39-year-olds, so our age range, considered moving. Um, and 25% of all the respondents said they 
considered moving to another state. Um, that would be the destination that they relocated to if they were going to move. Um, These numbers are big. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a, it's a little tough to put in context because it's not as if there's like a long track record of pulling these same housing questions over and over and over again by IGS. But just intuitively, over half of people thinking of moving because housing costs are so high and 70% of people in their 30s thinking of moving, it can't be good for the state. Well, right. And then we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, in previous podcasts, whether workforce, uh, you know, middle income people or people just starting out are are important to the economy and and growing and then being able to pay for, you know, know, uh, starting out their lives and having trouble being able to afford housing in any way to be able to do that. Now to the main event, 15 bills in hopefully less than four hours. (laughs) Um, Thank you for everyone who asked us questions on Twitter. We're going to get to a couple of those, a few of those questions as we kind of go through all of the bills. Um, Apologies if we don't get to your question. You're still special. We still very much appreciate you listening to us. Anything you'd like to add, Liam? Thanks. Let's start with the money. Yeah, so we... We kind of, I kind of broke these, all these 15 bills down into various categories. Um, and so there were two of them that really uh, are about investing more money in um, uh, primarily low-income housing development. So we'll start with Senate Bill 2. This was the one, this is the one that is basically uh, means people who go when they're refinancing their mortgage or making other real estate transactions have to pay $75 extra. If you've listened to the podcast, you've heard us describe the funding mechanism behind this about yeah, a million so, times. So $75 capped at $225 per yes. visit, um, and that will raise about $250 million a year. And so what's this money going to go towards, right? And, and we should also say it's permanent. Right. So yeah. this money happens every year. Yes. So you're going to keep getting this money, and these fees are perpetual, right? So the money is handled differently. In the first year, half of it is going to go directly to city, cities and counties to help them sort of redo their development blueprints in certain neighborhoods and potential environmental reviews and other things that cities have to do in, in order to prepare for um, for new development. That's, you know, $100 million for community planning, essentially, is a pretty big infusion of, of cash. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you, there's a house that pops up uh, immediately as a result of that. But the idea is by allowing cities and getting cities to kind of buy in and apply for these grants, um, that will facilitate a lot more housing in the future. So that's sort of the first half. And the second half in the first year dollars um, go towards the state to help sort of deal with kind of homelessness issues. And so, you know, potentially building uh, permanent supportive housing or temporary transitional housing, that's what those dollars will do in the first year. So no money in the first year actually going to affordable housing construction that does not include some type of homelessness component to it. Correct. Yeah. Now, in years forward, that sort of that gets flipped. And so almost all of the money goes towards um, financing low-income housing development in one way or another. I mean, there's, so there's a bunch of different programs. You know, one uh, that was interesting to me is that in particularly high-cost areas, like probably L.A. and San Francisco, you could help finance or subsidize housing that's up to 150% of um, what the median income of an area is. So does that only yeah. apply to those high-cost areas, or is that across the board? In, in other areas, it'd be 120%. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so again, Which this is, is kind of the standard for moderate income. Exactly. Housing. Exactly. Yeah. So, so again, I don't want to confuse the fact that most of the money is going to go towards sort of your your poorest residents, helping financing homes for them. Um, but uh, there are some certain programs, you know, others that'll promote home ownership and these sorts of things that are kind of different goals that the state has, where they'll also get some cash as well. And when you say f- financing affordable housing, what exactly does that mean? Is yeah, that so, money going to Developers, is that money going to subsidies for low-income individuals trying to get housing? It's all about building and preserving housing. And so what affordable developers have to do is often cobble together like 15 different sources of funding, whether it's uh, tax credits, which is a a primary source uh, that gets from the federal government that gets sort of spread out through the state. And then there's some, you know, uh, cities have things like linkage fees um, that sort of raise money on commercial developers when they build retail in town. They pay a fee that goes towards um, potentially building affordable housing in in that community. And so this sort of adds to the stew of housing dollars that's available that, that developers can kind of pull on to try to package together enough money to finance their projects as a whole. Um, Speaking of the stew of uh, money available to housing developers, to affordable housing developers, 
Let's talk about the bond measure. Is there yeah. anything else on SB2 we no, should? No, I mean, that's it. And the bond yeah. measure it almost does. I mean, again, there are different programs that the that the, that the bond will fund mm-hmm. um, compared to Senate Bill 2. But the sort of the broad strokes of that are the, are, are the same. Uh, a couple of things, you know, important things to note. Again, as we've said, this money, this bond money uh, is not something you can count on yet. It needs to be passed at the, at the ballot um, next November. Second, a $1 billion of that $4 billion uh, goes towards home loans for veterans. And so that's not going to result in the building of any more housing. Uh, that's going to be money that veterans will be able to use to buy houses um, and then pay the money, pay that money back. Um, there's also, you know, an interesting uh, mix. Uh, uh, there's some money that goes towards uh, helping promote uh, 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 home building for farm workers, uh, which is another priority, a long priority of, of lawmakers, particularly from obviously from more rural areas. And so uh, this sort of infusion of dollars um, is something that the state has not had for a long time. And again, uh, sort of makes that stew, I guess, a little more, a little, little richer when developers can can tap on it. Uh, to, Liam to is get grimacing as he as tries I'm, to as I'm the tortur- torturing that metaphor. So um, <laughs> that was bad. But uh, but more money, you know, affordable housing developers are going to like that. And then the cumulative impact in terms of units built over over a given time frame. Yeah, so for ass- these two money sources, right? So assuming assuming um, assuming that the bond gets spent down in five years, and and counting sort of private investment and the kind of. Uh, uh, other um, investments from different kind of sources of affordable housing dollars, roughly 14,000 units uh, a year, um, which, again, given the overall need in the state is 100,000 units more than they're actually doing, a drop in the bucket, um, but certainly makes a big difference for those who would not otherwise have housing that can get houses as a result of this. Let's talk about those bills that made it easier for developers to actually develop. Yeah, so there are three of them. Um, sort of the big one, the one that's talked about the most, is Senate Bill 35, um, which uh, sort of builds on a proposal uh, from the governor last year that went nowhere, uh, but this one obviously did. Um, and it's a base, pretty basic principle that if a city is zoned a specific parcel of land for a particular amount of housing, then developers should be able to build there. Um, that's kind of the basic principle on, on, on which this bill is built. But there are a lot of sort of caveats to that. Um, and uh, what it's addressing is that, you know, a lot of cities will have uh, forced these kinds of projects, again, even when the zoning matches the, the, per, the prescribed density of the project, will go through multiple planning commission reviews and city council reviews, and, and that takes time, and time is money, and that makes it harder to build in general, right? So what this does, Senate Bill 35 does, it says and for a number of projects, these sort of multiple reviews no longer exist. And but the, the the project that it that these fit are very specific. So they have to be uh, multifamily, so not single family homes. They have to reserve a certain percentage of their project for uh, low income residents. Yeah, at, ha- least 10%. at least ten percent. At least ten percent. They're not allowed to be uh, along the coast. Uh, so what's known as the coastal zone. So the number of the beach cities um, up and down the state, your Huntington beaches, Redondo beaches, the vast majority of them would be excluded from this, or um, or entirely excluded from. Um, the provisions under SB 35, uh, they have to pay construction workers sort of union level um, wages and abide by union level hiring rules. Um, and so, uh, oh, they can't demolish existing low income or rent controlled housing. Mm-hmm. And so there are various kind of specific group of projects that would qualify for this for this process. And also, um, the only way this process kicks in is if cities are behind in meeting their uh, sort of state uh, housing growth goals. Um, this is something that the state does every eight years, tells every city, here are the amount of houses you have to, uh, that have to be built in your community to keep pace with population growth. And only if cities are behind um, in that would this, would this process kick in. And how do they measure whether they're behind in that or not? Um, it's based off permits, correct? It's based on, yes, on whether a, a city or whether developers actually building. And so there are four income categories and this gets kind of, cool. it can get complicated very quickly. Uh, but there are, you know, uh, uh, houses that need to be built uh, at sort of above market rate and mm-hmm. for the poorest residents. And so only if you're not meeting your goals in a particular income category is that income category streamlined. 
So, uh, so, oh, so, so for instance, so okay. for instance, if a city has uh, gotten uh, more than or is on pace for more than 100% of their uh, market rate housing to be built, mm-hmm. then market rate projects would not qualify mm-hmm. um, uh, under this. It would only be those where they might be behind on, say, for housing to be built for the, the for the lowest or the poorest residents. So, what's interesting to me about about this is, you know, I, again, I spent a lot of time uh, investigating this sort of uh, housing planning uh, growth targets uh, for a big story I did over the summer. And one thing I found is that there was no sort of penalty or incentive really for cities to have their housing goals met or not. And this sort of for the first time inaugurates one which says these sort of streamlining provisions only kick in if you're, if these goals are not met. And so I'm particularly interested in that aspect of it, the fact that it that it again ties a sort of carrot or stick approach to this process that has been pretty uh, toothless in the past. So cities have to like tell the state every year how many units are being built by any yes, and, and many cities each, don't. And many cities don't and the numbers the state does get um, based on my research is in a word trash. Uh, mm-hmm. And so like y- you know getting good data um, I think is important and this bill ensures that that, that, or does a better job or tra- aims to ensure that the state actually gets better data on what's getting built in the state. That's right. So if, if your city is not submitting that, then projects would also qualify for That's ex- correct. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, there's additional questions in terms of like, even if they are submitting the data, whether that data is reliable. There's no third-party verification system beyond no. the state, right? No. Which has limited resources. And when I compared, you know, data that cities would turn in with uh, sort of permit data that the the Building Industry Association, um, sort of the trade group uh, reports, they're wildly all over the map. Uh, and so, there, again, the state getting good, reliable data on this is foundational to understanding good policies. You have to know what's actually happening, and this hopefully will get um, better data to the state so that we will know what's actually happening with home building. Uh, let's talk about some carrots for streamlining development. AB 73 and SB 540. So these two bills kind of take the same approach, which which, which says, uh, <laughs> here's some money, cities. Um, uh, if you want to designate, um, if you want to designate certain neighborhoods as kind of places where you want housing to be, we're going to give you some money to kind of do all the planning and environmental reviews uh, that you need to do, so that once those reviews are done, developers can come in and build again, sort of without delay. Um, on projects that meet sort of the zoning requirements that you've now newly laid out. Uh, and again, there's some labor provisions that you have to meet, and there, ha- and there are some provisions for reserving portions of your projects for uh, lower-income residents. But um, again, assuming you meet those provisions, uh, then you'll be able to build without delay, and it's hopefully sort of seen as what could be a win-win. Communities get money to do the planning that they need, and developers get the certainty that they need to, to build the housing um, that, 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 that the state needs. What's your take on whether cities will actually utilize these. Well, again, I, I think it depends on how much money they're going to get, and that's not really been delineated in the in in the bills. Um, and so, you know, or where the actual money is coming from, right? And so, um, you know, money is nice, um, but you know, if you really want to deal with the the sort of the cities that are considered the most problems in saying no to housing. Telling them we're going to pay you to to help plan for more housing is not really a good carrot. Um, so I think maybe in certain communities, um, you know, probably some of the bigger cities, LA and, and San Francisco and uh, San Diego and others that sort of have demonstrated or said that they want a commitment to, to home building, having this money money available will will be good for them. Um, and, and then we'll see, you know, whether. Um, the, 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 the restrictions with respect to designated a certain amount of housing for low-income residents or by having to abide by these sort of labor provisions uh, makes it something that developers want to do, too. So both sides have to agree, um, and this is, again, could be speaking what we were saying before about no sort of quick fixes. This could be a lengthy process before we see anything kind of on the ground is actually it, happening. Um, let's talk about forcing or incentivizing developers to build more low-income housing specifically. So there was sort of the headline, I guess, a bill in this kind of package um, was AB 1505. Um, and so 
kind of torturous, but um, you know, right now there's a policy whereby cities can say, okay, developer, if you want to build, then you have to reserve a certain portion of your projects for, a low, for lower income residents. And so this was allowed on kind of for sale projects, but based on a lawsuit filed by an LA developer uh, uh, that was decided in 2009, this was no longer allowed for uh, rental projects, so apartments. And that's because the developer argued in kind of an interesting way that um, doing so would be an illegal expansion of rent control. Um, and so uh, this bill, AB 1505, passed uh, that says now, yes, cities, you can force developers to set aside a portion of their rental apartment projects for low-income residents as well. Although it, it, it will be up to the state to kind of develop its own guidelines in terms of evaluating what constitutes a unnecessary burden when it comes to inclusionary an inclusionary percentage, right? Yeah, and, you know, San Francisco is kind of like kind of has, is the one, I guess, probably the, the community in the state that's that's dealt with this issue the most. And they've kind of walked through feasibility studies and are kind of yeah. figuring out exactly how that works. And so there is certainly some ground to to work on whereby the state will be able to figure this out. But this is, again, I think this is one of those you'll know when you see it for the most part. I mean, I think there, are, there may be some particularly egregious cases and we'll see them and then you'll be able to, to say, oh, okay, come on, guys. 75% is unrealistic and you're not allowed to do that. Let's very quickly discuss AB 571 and AB 1521. So AB 571 um, expands a farm worker housing tax credit program with sort of the goal of, again, what we were saying before to say, oh, okay, uh, we want to be able to use this better to pair with or to combine with the other sort of funding sources in the stew um, to help get, in this case, farm worker housing built a bit more easily. And then AB 1521, uh, that sort of interesting bill. Um, a lot of these, when developers build low-income housing, they only say, oh, okay, we're only going to restrict that for a certain number of years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And this basically said, this bill will say, okay, after that time limit is up, um, it's almost an offer of first refusal to other uh, low-income developers to say, you know, you will have to, if there's a qualified offer for your project, uh, you have to accept it provided that that developer is willing to keep these income restrictions on it. And so it's about the preservation of sort of existing low-income housing. All right, let's move on to uh, a group of bills that force cities to plan for more housing more adequately. I can call these the RENA failure bills. Um, yeah, which, you know, RENA is like the worst word. I, I mean, it's not even a word, it's an acronym. So RENA stands for like Regional Housing Needs Assessment. And this, again, goes back to what I was saying before about uh, sort of cities having to plan every eight years for um, for the amount of housing that, that they uh, are supposed to are supposed to be built in their communities. And that's what RENA stands for, essentially, is that planning process. And so one common complaint um, it, it, through that process is that cities will choose, choose to zone parcels of land for housing where housing will never be built, right? Um, and so AB 1397 uh, attempts to address that. Uh, you know, that, and I, one example I, I, I referenced in my project is in, was in La Cunada Flint Ridge, which is a um, wealthy bedroom community outside of LA, which basically rezoned a, um, a large commercial property that was existing that had a big Joanne Fabrics store on it and say, oh, okay, you guys can build housing here but less, like, hardly even a wink and a nod from elected officials in that community saying, nah, it's never going to happen. Like, we just need to do this to appease the state, but they're never actually going to build housing here. They'd have to buy out Joanne's fabrics. That's not going to happen. And so don't worry. There's, don't worry. There's not going to be any housing. So there it, goes Joanne Fabrics as our possible sponsor to this podcast, <laughs> Liam. Congratulations. Well, you know, hopefully there'll be others. Uh, but AB 1397, what that would do is say, nah, you're not allowed to do that. So it, it would, it, it sort of tightens up the rules for when cities designate these sites that uh, they have to be kind of more realistic. And SB 166, Nancy Skinner's bill. Yeah. So right now, again, cities have to zone enough land to accommodate all housing that's contemplated in their state goals. And so you have to show, say, your 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 target is to have 100 units built. Um, you have to zone enough land that encompasses these 100 units. And so but what happens sometimes is cities will approve projects on a piece of land that may be zoned for 30 units. They might approve only 20 units on, on that piece of land. And so uh, under the existing process, you don't have to go back and make any changes uh, to your housing plan. This one would says that if you do that, you have to rezone more land to make up for what you sort of love lost 
uh, in 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 what you've already approved. Um, so this is the no net loss bill that yes. has that's the way certain housing wonks have referred to it. Correct. Right. Um, we did get a question uh, on Twitter about this that has a very simple, clear answer. So this is from Mike Branson, who asks: Under the no net loss bill, how quickly must cities redesignate new available sites after approving? A project that doesn't include all assigned arena housing. Right. And the answer is? Six months. There you go. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Mike. AB 879. So under this planning process, um, cities have to kind of write out what are some of the things that are blocking housing being built and what are some of the steps that we're taking to alleviate those problems. And so that's part of this sort of voluminous planning report that cities have to do. They have to talk about those things. And so ABH 79 adds to that list. Um, uh, Right now, cities have to analyze things that are not directly under the control, like the cost of land uh, in their plans. And this, again, adds to that. And, and one thing it adds, um, it, 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 it uh, includes learning about the length of time it takes for a developer to start building after a city uh, gives them approval to build. And so uh, there could be a variety of reasons for that. Um, you know, maybe it's hard for the developer to get their financing. But what this sort of forces cities to do is kind of analyze and look at what those problems in their particular community might be. Um, and then see if there's anything that they can do to, to alleviate or mitigate some of those problems. Are there typically additional regulatory hurdles that are very time-consuming between the permit granting and the actual construct start of construction? I think that's. I think it might depend on the community, but I think primarily that's a developer problem, not a city problem. Okay. Um, but you know, who knows? Like some cities may it may be hard to pull a permit. You might have to walk through a lot of steps to do that. I, particularly, I would presume in smaller communities that have very small building departments, um, harder. You know, takes more time to pull a permit. It seems like. You know, some of these bills are truly additional layers, like stuff that planning departments are going to have to now additionally do to what their original burden was. And some of it is simply, you need to be do. you should have already been doing this. Now you really need to do this, right? Yes. Okay. And that'll kind of get, that's a nice segue to our last sort of thing is kind of very much enforcing the laws that are on the books. Right? Yes. Penalizing cities that say no to housing. Yeah. So so there were three bills that, that sort of deal with what's known as the Housing Accountability Act, which is a law that's been on the books for a number of years that says, um, you know, cities are not allowed to deny housing uh, on on land that's zoned for a particular amount of housing simply because they don't like it. They have to have a real reason to say no. The problem, of course, is this, you know, this this law is rarely used, and it's rarely used because a lot of times cities don't really say no. What they'll do is they'll kind of say, well, if you make this change or that change, then um, then you can get it done, and then the developer will come back and say, well, now you need, need, need to do these three other things. And so it's kind of a slow walk to a no. And also developers don't like to sue cities where they work because they may have another project they need to do two or three years later. And, and if they sue once, you know, that's going to kind of poison the well potentially for uh, future things that they may want to do. And so, um, you know, we'll see uh, whether these three bills, uh, is this is SB 167, AB 678, and AB 1515, whether they will make an appreciable difference. What they actually do is uh, sort of um, uh, lower the burden of proof that developers uh, need for proving a city said no for to housing for a, sort of an arbitrary reason, and also ups the fines um, on cities that do it. We, we did get a, a very simple question. Well, I shouldn't call it a simple question. A good question with a simple answer on Twitter, um, which is uh, two of the bills are basically twin bills, SB 167 and AB 678. Why are there two bills with the same things in them. So this is not uncommon in in the legislature where you try to run a bill in both houses because you don't know, like, and again, one of these are a Senate bills, one's an assembly bill. You don't know which one might make it through the process. One might fail early on, and then you have another one that's still active, or there may be amendments that are taken in one or changes that are worked through through one that kind of make it easier or kind of secure some some solutions. And so having kind of policy working on both ends is, uh, is a, not an uncommon way to kind of address a particular problem. And then at the end, you know, of course, bill authors who have their name on something want their name to persist. And so often you'll have um, sort of what these bills do kind of split into two or split into three so that each kind of uh, legislator gets their name on a, on a, on a, on a part of this. Um, ego and procedure all tied into one. There you go. Uh, let's talk about AB 72, which deals with that issue that 
the issue of developers not wanting to sue um, cities. Yeah, so... And the recourses that they have. Right, so AB 72 um, adds more authority for the state to review housing plans and figure out whether a city is um, taking an action that's contrary to their to their plan and then if they find that 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 their that their that the action was illegal um, they're able to review refer that to the attorney general's office for, for potential litigation against that against the city and so you know developers uh, have been the ones or um, kind of nonprofit like housing advocates have been the ones to sue cities for not following through with their housing plans in one way or another or not developing good housing plans all these sorts of things and this would you know in a way aim to try to get the state more involved in uh, in that process to try to eliminate some of the concerns that developers or kind of not very well funded housing advocates uh, may have in, 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 in trying to enforce these laws that are already on, already on the books um did we get through all of them? Fifteen, man. Uh, I know. Exhausting. Take a sigh. Yes. Yeah. Uh, sigh of relief and of joy. <laughs> Mostly of relief. Yeah. Um, all right. Anything? Anything else before we get to the panel? No. I, I mean, I, this was an. It, it's it, my. There, there's a lot of substance in here. My general takeaway from all of this is that. Um, what the legislature did this year was very big politically. This was the first time that um, in, a, in, in a number of years, and some advocates have said forever, that they have dedicated this amount of time and resources and energy to passing a package of, of, of housing legislation that also included— um, You're about to go at what I just said, which is that there is some substance in here. I well, can tell where this is headed. Right, but it also included some money, which is needed. I mean, yeah. everyone who's intellectually honest agrees that the only way to fix this massive problem that we have is if we make it easier to build housing in general so that there are more houses in total because we have a just incredible housing shortage that needs to be addressed um, at all income levels. And also uh, acknowledges that um, that certain folks at the bottom of the market are never going to be addressed by the market. Um, And so you need to subsidize and spend more money to subsidize housing for them. And so this package of bills did both of those things. In in the macro level, it addressed uh, both sides of that equation. I think it's also worth noting that the the success of this in a large measure degrees or depends on variables that are external to this, such as what the feds do with tax reform, right? Appetite for the low-income housing tax credit at the federal level, right? This this is the program that funds the the vast majority of low-income housing in the state, and it relies on um, banks essentially saying, uh, oh, we're going to buy these tax credits to help fund affordable housing so that we lower our um, what we pay to the federal government. If tax rates go down, then they need these less. That yep. means they buy fewer. That means less housing gets built. Yep. And so there are so many variables, as you said, that, that determine um, how this process works. And then another key variable will be the attitude of the new administration in 2019 towards how aggressive they want to enforce these, right? And not only that, on uh, which sort of side of the equation, do they embrace both sides of the equation, more, you know, streamlining and more By money? By both sides, of, okay. Yeah. Um, or do they just say, oh, the answer is just money, or the answer is no more money, we can't afford it, so it's just streamlining? And I don't know if either side, well, certainly either side of that is not enough. And I don't know if you don't have them together, you can forge political will to get either of them done. Um, all right, enough of us talking about this. Let's talk to people who are specifically directly involved in whether this will be a success or failure. We have a wonderful group of people here who are experts in California housing, and we're super excited to talk about uh, what just passed in the legislature this year. So why don't we have everyone who's with us uh, introduce themselves and then tell us what their favorite bill is. And why? <laughs> okay, my name is Mia Kong, and I'm an infill affordable housing developer. I work statewide, but I also spend a lot of my time working in Sacramento trying to promote infill and affordable housing policies that help to actually get what the state wants on the ground done. And quite honestly, with the loss of redevelopment, it's been very challenging. So I find myself, I'm on the board of directors for the Council of Infill Builders, and the bill that I favored the most is one that I worked on called uh, NIFTI, Neighborhood Infill Finance Improvement uh, Transportation 
Improvement District. Sorry. <laughs> Lots of acronyms. It's really about the acronym. It's a good acronym. Yes, though. yes. It's a good acronym. Thank you. Thank Nifty's you. funny. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Funny. It's yeah. good. So it's, it's anyway, it looks at trying to create some new affordable housing funding techniques and uh, bringing in um, sales tax increment as lo- along with a use tax and property tax increment to fund infrastructure and affordable housing. Good. And I'm Brian Augusta. I'm a legislative advocate with uh, the California Rural Legal Assistance Foundation. We're a nonprofit law firm that represents the interest of uh, low-income people uh, throughout California, but with a primary focus on on rural California and, and the needs of farm workers. And um, our organization, along with a number of others, but um, chiefly Western Center on Law and Poverty, our other legal services uh, ally in the Capitol, sponsored six of the bills in this package. So we were pretty intimately involved in a, in most of the bills that are in this 15-bill package. So it makes it difficult to uh, narrow it down to sort of the favorite or most important. And I, I would, I don't think I would say the most important because I think each of them have impacts on, on the housing crisis in different ways. But I think the most significant, maybe from even a personal standpoint, is AB 1505, which is the bill um, that restores the ability of local governments to um, require that a certain percentage of newly developed housing includes housing affordable to lower income households. Um, Those kinds of policies exist in 170 jurisdictions in California, but um, a recent court case made their application to rental housing unclear at best. And for a number of years, advocates and local governments have been trying to to restore the ability to apply to rental housing. And 1505, which is in the package, took a number of years to get it through. Um, this is like maybe the fourth iteration of the bill. Governor had vetoed a prior version. So I think in some respects that, that one is uh, the most significant because we were able to remove the opposition of a number of statewide uh, sort of you know, groups representing the real estate industry. So I think that's a pretty significant. And he's going to sign it this time. That's what he said. That, that's what he said. Did right? he say that to he you? Did. Because he did it, say okay, that to all me. All right, yes. good. That, that, <laughs> yes. Feel good about that. We're just yeah. double checking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good morning. Uh, Jason Ryan, League California Cities. Uh, League California Cities, we represent the 482 cities in, in California. Uh, we're an association for those cities. Um, as Brian indicated, I mean, it's hard to choose one bill this year that uh, that we think of you know, the most significant since we did sponsor um, several bills. But I think the one bill, if I had to choose, that is going to be the most meaningful and I think have you know potentially long-term um, positive impacts on, on affordability in our state really is SB2. Um, SB2, it's not perfect. It doesn't bring back the billion-plus dollars we saw in a redevelopment, um, but it does set aside important funding to update our plans at the local level. So the, this is the real estate transaction oh, fee, $75 yeah. that people pay when they refinance their mortgages and the money goes towards various things and you're explaining how that's going to help cities, particularly in the first year. Exactly. So yeah, it's going to generate roughly two to maybe $300 million annually in that first year. Um, half of it's going to go to update those plans, which is key. Good planning is going to lead to better development in our communities. Um, in the years out, 70% of the funds then are going to be allocated back to local government um, for a myriad of local of, of housing projects and programs. Um, so it's it's important, very important funding. I know the senator worked very hard to get that passed, um, and we were certainly supportive the whole way. So why don't we start? Um, I'm hoping we could talk about uh, how big of a deal you think this actually is. I mean, we've talked a lot about how in the state is 100,000 units short of what needs to build every year based on on uh, sort of current projections, and also the amount of money is tens of billions of dollars short of, of what it needs to help, you know, even the most, the most in need for housing, um, despite this package passing. And so I'm curious if you, you could sort of go through from your perspective, like, is this a big deal or is this a drop in the bucket or, or what's your take? Well, you know, I think, well, let me start by saying that we're not done. And I think we've heard this from a number of folks, including elected officials who are key leaders on this thing. So I want to start sort of by saying the negative part, which is we still have a lot of work to do uh, to get California out of this affordable housing crisis. But having said that, I think this is very significant. When you look, you know, first of all, do no harm. So let's not lose any affordable housing. We addressed that or we, we worked to address that. You need an adequate supply of land. There's a couple of bills that address that. Um, you need to remove barriers to housing approval. So SB 35 helps address that by streamlining it. And um, AB 72, which deals with adequate enforcement of existing laws, that helps to address it. 
And there's an, you know, you got to hold local governments accountable, and we're doing that. Sorry, Jason. Sorry. Not your, you know, not all of your folks. And then, <laughs> not all cities. Right. Yes. Yeah. Some of them. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, on the housing that's going to be affordable to my clients, as you pointed out in, in your reporting, Liam, there's, you know, no amount of supply is going to ever reach down to our clients. So we're always going to need to have some additional subsidy to help close that gap. And we're addressing that. So, Again, not a silver bullet, but we're hitting all of uh, or a majority of the parts that it's going to take to get us out of this crisis. We have more work to do. And I think when we look at how this gets implemented, we're everyone in this table and everyone you've been talking to, we're going to be back talking about further changes and we still have work to do. But I think it's I think it's very significant. This is Mia. I'd also like to say SB3 is critical to getting passed. So I think everything that Brian said, I absolutely agree with, so but it's going to take, this, this is, is the bond measure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're not there yet with money. So we can't actually check the box and say we're Good done. Point. And Good the point. money that SB2 brings forward is excellent because let me tell you, local jurisdictions are absolutely broke. I mean, they have no housing departments anymore. Everything is decimated and it's, it's, it's hard. So I think that will act absolutely jumpstart, I think, what needs to happen at the local level. But that is not enough to fill the gaps. You will not be seeing housing being produced everywhere in the state as a result of these bills. Um, I think it starts to move the needle, but we are absolutely not there. Uh, I can tell you right now, the cost of construction is hitting the roof. I haven't seen prices like this in, frankly, before the recession. And so it's labor shortages. So we're coupling, you know, we have a tax credit crisis right now because our current administration, because of tax reform, has absolutely affected the price of housing tax credits in the country. And those are the the biggest source of affordable housing funding in the state, correct? Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. everybody needs these affordable housing tax credits to make these deals work. So we've begun to make a change, in no way do I see this as a silver bullet. I see this at least loading up some ammo. We now actually have something to work with, but we have to build on this. And we can't say we're done. These were hard votes to do, but they, we are not done. We yeah. are nowhere near done because there's a lot of things that have to happen. We have ignored infrastructure in most of our infill areas, most of our cities, most of our old suburban towns all need to be retrofitted. You need to move roads. You need to have cre- create alignments. You have to create transit. All these things cost a lot of money. And right now there isn't the funds to do it. So I think there's also a paradigm shift that needs to happen. We need to continue to kind of shape this so we can think about ways that we can regenerate sort of the kinds of subsidies that we need in these areas to kind of continue to invest in them. Is Nifty part of that? Yes. No, but, you know, in general, too, we absolutely need the subsidy piece. So, you know, we absolutely need the $4 billion housing bond and we need the voters of California to vote for it. I mean, that's a critical piece. Without that piece, we're not going to see the statewide housing production that we're going to need to see just to begin to start making a dent in all the housing we haven't been building. Right. And this is Jason with the League of Cities. Um, I, I would think I, I think this is a really big deal. Um, these bills, you know, the 15 or so that are that are probably going to be signed. I think when you look at them individually, you know, you, they may not seem like much. But when you add them all up, I mean, they're making significant changes to the Housing Accountability Act. They're making significant changes to how we do our housing elements. They're making significant changes to how we approve and disapprove projects. Um, so it's going to be a, a bit of a learning curve, I think, for our cities, particularly on the, you know, the reform, the regulatory side, the streamlining side. Um, we have we have a lot to do. And, um, you know, when I hear that there's a lot more that needs to be done, we would agree. Um, I would think that, that we would hope that there isn't a lot more that's going to be on the regulatory side, at least not out of the gate, given that we're going to have to deal with, you know, the eight or 10 bills that are, that are you know, pushes in a direction that we're not used to being pushed in. So I think there's going to, there's going to need some time for our cities to adjust, update those plans, particularly on the, the inventory of sites when we identify those in our housing element for where we can put um, the various income classes of, of affordable units or even market rate units. Um, so there's going to be a little bit of lag there. Um, but on the incentive side, on the need to look at tax credits, incredibly important because, you know, we're not going to see a whole lot of money out of the gate. We're going to have to campaign and convince voters to approve, you know, the bond. In 2018, we're going to have a lot of other stuff on the ballot as well, right. um, which is going to be complicated. And if some of the the other um, issues that are swirling out there that are unrelated um, to, to housing, they could have an effect on housing, though, if they end up on the ballot. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds as we head into that November 2018 election. Uh, Mia, is SB 35 and the other streamlining bills that were in this package, are they actively changing your firm's approach to development yet? Is is that something you guys are discussing internally? I think it will have an effect for very specific types of projects. So in urbanized areas where you're already paying prevailing wage, it's going to help. Um, 
you know, I think there, there it's definitely um, it's going to take some time, I think, at the local level for them to get comfortable with what that means. And we'll see what that rollout's going to be. So I think, you know, it may take a year or so before people are kind of comfortable. But in my experience, when you have a piece of state law that cuts through your local planning rules and jurisdictions, it's a heck of a lot easier for those planning commissioners to say, you know, don't blame me, blame the governor. And that's absolutely the kind of uh, protection that local uh, electeds and planning commissioners need to do the right thing. So I think it will make a change. Um, it's it's still you know still got to get signed. It still has to kind of be implemented. But I think st- come next year there will be people taking advantage of it. So like how much though? You said yeah. particular projects. Like are we talking mate? Like you know only maybe a half dozen cities, or are we talking um, you know maybe a dozen projects, or like what's kind of the scale here you're talking about? Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, I think it also really it couples with you know it's, it's the more sophisticated projects that require say public subsidies. Those are going to be the ones I think that could fit very nicely with SB thirty five that have an affordability requirement that are one hundred percent affordable or some percentage of affordable. Outside of that, I think it's going to become, in, in my personal opinion, I don't necessarily see it being the um, the incentive to say get a. Uh, a home builder who wants to build, say, some condominiums in Bakersfield, for example. I don't see that kind of project being incentivized for that use. And, and why is that? Uh, often because there there's a very little differential between profit. Uh, it costs a lot to build this stuff. And if you're going to try to do it as a market rate unit, in many respects, they won't push the zoning. They'll just build what's normal. I mean, in many cases, you can build a McDonald's, a fast food joint, much easier from an entitlement standpoint than you could do a mixed-use project in that same site. Right. And so we're not, we're, we're not doing enough, in my opinion, to incentivize those people that have these small properties that are in all of our sort of major cities that are just sort of those little, you know, parking lots now or underutilized lights now right. that, that could be a 30-unit project, that could be a, a 50 unit project. But because of the hurdles you have to go through and the costs that you have to go through, they'd much rather say low common denominator. I'll just build it as a McDonald's. I was trying to think of an analogy to help with sort of explaining this to folks who aren't wonks like us. And SB 35 is sort of like, you know, Disneyland. If you go to Disneyland, right, that's like the most expensive park in California. And there's a reason that everyone wants to pay a lot and they have really nice rides. So SB30, so there's a system there that you can bypass those long lines and get to your ride faster. It's a fast pass, right? So SB35 is your fast pass. But the fast pass only does you good if, and it only works on some rides. So it only works if the park is open, right? Not the Wally World thing from vacation. Sorry, folks, park's closed. (laughs) Moose out front should have told you. It only works if the park's open. And then if the rides you want to ride right are open so you go to the park with your fast pass but all those fast pass rides are closed because they've been developed or the site isn't zoned that doesn't do you any good so you're going to go up pretty good analogy that's an excellent analogy i was hoping it would work (laughs) so what's that one up you know back up the highway you go up to magic mountain Mm -hmm. right and you'd go to the rides there instead and so some of the bills in the package, including ones that we sponsored, SB 166 and AB 1397, are about making sure that all the rides are open, right? So that the fast pass can be used and that there is an adequate supply. And, and you know, Mia deals with this as well. But you're going to choose to go, if, if the rides are closed at Disneyland, you're not going to stand there and wait for the rides to open. You're going to go to the other park. And that's what often happens. And that's why we see some of the constrained supply that we're seeing. Right. And I think, you know, one thing to, to point out, though, is that, you know, the streamlining is going to be mandatory for cities. Essentially, every city in our state is going to be required to streamline if a developer wants it. The developer is under no obligation to use that streamlining. So it's almost halfway there. You still need a motivated developer that wants to move forward and pay prevailing wage, who wants to build their project without parking requirements, all that sort of stuff. So um, it, it, it seems like it's not quite complete. That we, you know, And I think that's one of the biggest things that we've missed in this package this year is that there was a lot of focus on local government, a lot of focus on barriers at the local level, but there was essentially no focus on trying to compel developers to actually develop their property. And I think you know here in Sacramento, if you look at J Street as a prime example of the city doing everything in their power to try to get developers to develop a corridor that is, you know, blighted and has been blighted for decades, 
and the city can't really get them to do it. And what what has caused the change? Well, we have the arena that's been built over on K Street, and those developers are going to develop that property, or they're going to sell those entitlements to somebody else so they actually get done. So, right. um, yeah, I think that's something we'd like to see next year. How do we, you know, how do we compel developers? How do we incentivize developers to actually develop the property in these prime locations that everybody wants them developed? I mean, cities want this stuff developed as well. So, so uh, Jason. Or- Glad you're here because a lot of the stuff that we've talked about and a lot of stuff in the package has been a lot of blame cities. It's the city's fault, you know, and, and you could find so many exa- examples of this sort of issues sort of being concerning. Just this morning, I uh, saw that the general plan that Huntington Beach, a really wealthy city in Orange County, um, just did. Uh, took them four years to do it. They're finishing up. Uh, now plans for less, fewer housing units in 2040 than they had planned in their, in their 1996 plan, right? At a time when... Uh, Every academic and expert says, you know, cities along the coast where the job growth is, all of these places need to build more units to, to take pressures off other areas of the state and where the economic opportunity is. Here's a city that's done everything planning wise, and yet they're not moving in, in the direction that folks believe they have to to uh, to meet this housing challenge. So how does help me understand and help our listeners understand how local control in these sorts of situations is is beneficial to, to addressing the problems that we have. Yeah. I'm not familiar with, you know, Huntington Beach's example, you know, so I can't really speak to that. When, when it comes to, you know, land use planning, and, and I mean, that is a cornerstone of local government. I mean, that's why we have cities for the most part. I mean, so that the residents via their elected officials um, can plan for their communities and to develop that community. Um, so, of course, within we think that, you know, it should it should stay at the local level. I mean, the state obviously um, should um, have some, you know, pull some levers and, and try to get cities to, to develop in certain ways and have incentives. And we have SB 375. We have a whole host of greenhouse gas emission laws and targets that we want to get to. There's pots of money out out there for cities access in order to do that sort of development. Um, but at the end of the day, though, I think, you know, city councilors are listening to those that elect them. And then people in the community, um, you know, have a vision for their community a certain way. And that's why we have a general plan. So that vision can be, you know, lived out, if you will. Um, and then, but there are folks outside of those cities, outside of those regions that might feel that, you know, we need to locate more housing in a particular area. Um, and and that's a tough one. I mean, I, you know, it, it's, uh, I think ultimately voters are going to decide. And if, you know, councils aren't doing the right thing, if they don't do the, you know, the general plan that their residents like, um, they're going to be voted out and, you know, somebody else will replace them. And I think we've seen that on some councils, particularly in the Bay Area, where, you know, the residents may have become a little bit more pro-growth than maybe some of the council members have. And you've seen changes um, in the council makeup. So, I mean, I think that's democracy and that's the system that that we have. I think if the state interferes too much, then you're going to see a revolt and you're going to have, you know, ballot measures that will be passed where there's no growth or slow growth. And we even had bills this year that protect that when it comes to no growth initiatives. We made it more difficult to you know, approve um, large projects without secret review, but we preserve the right of residents to prohibit growth, essentially. So it's a mixed bag, I think, that we're seeing out of, out of the legislature. I mean, a lot of local, a lot of state elected officials started in local government, and you hear some of them talk, and they speak like they're still a local elected official. And so I think, you know, we're not there, but I think we do have to be cognizant that... Um, that we've got a robust robust set of laws on the books. So if we're all playing by the same rules, let's let's enforce those laws adequately, which we're hoping is the next sort of turn. Yeah, and that, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, we would agree wholeheartedly that there are a whole host of we're not coming back. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, there are right? a whole host of laws. <laughs> There's going to be more <laughs> that are on the books. I mean, it, but in all seriousness, I mean, even this year there are tweaks to the Housing Accountability Act. I mean, that's the Dal not deny law, and you know, NIMBYs can be a challenge, and but I think there's a really big difference between NIMBYs and our elected officials. And our elected officials at the local level are caught. They're caught in that middle. And, um, you know, the Housing Accountability Act is there because, you know, we cannot deny projects just because the neighbors don't like it. Now, there's a gray area that that we often talk about, Brian and I and Anya, we've talked about it a lot. And, you know, it's hard to legislate that gray area where a project is not really denied, um, but, you know, the developer is seeking a zoning change or a density change or some other discretion at the local level, which then empowers the council um, to, you know, say yay or nay, the Housing Accountability Act really doesn't apply in those situations. So um, it, and it's, it's, an, it's an issue. And I think, you know, we're interested in trying to tackle it. Um, but I think, you know, the bills that we that have passed this year are going to make changes to the Housing Accountability Act that are going to make it more difficult for, for jurisdictions just to deny a project. Um, it's going to have to be for a really good reason and a reason that is, you know, documented and goes beyond substantial evidence in the record. Um, and I think it's going to, um, you know, it'll result, I, you know, you don't see very many denials now, but I mean, I think it's going to 
to certainly um, have our councils, you know, second guess or take a closer look at that application and make sure um, that, you know, uh, it, it is a, a legal denial or lawful denial. Could, could you kind of delve into why the attorney general's involvement in this is so important? And maybe you too, Mia. Yeah, well, a couple of things. One, right now, um, when a, if a development gets denied or a city is pursuing development policies that sort of make them off limits to development, folks like Mia, that's not, that, that's not their enterprise. They're not going to go out and sue the, the city that's, you know, engaging in exclusionary zoning. And why not, Mia? Why won't you sue? Well, you know, it's also the hand that feeds you. Right. So often the subsidy is coming from the cities yep. or whatever little extra variances or whatnot. So you don't necessarily want to bite that hand. But at the same time, you're banging your head against the wall going, how am I going to make all this work? You know, you need developers need certainty. They need to know that if I buy this piece of land, I'm going to have a, a, a a high likelihood of being approved, entitled, and then I can bring my financing and, and do all the things people want to see yeah. done. Yeah. And I think so as a result of that, it falls to um, essentially legal services groups and the occasional developer and sometimes the the building industry association, the, the trade group for, for the you know, market rate developers suing. But but those are few and far between. Our legal services colleagues are, don't have a lot of resources, so they can't pursue a lot of these cases. The AG has, you know, significant resources at their disposal. And I also think if, you know, we're having this huge debate in California, which has now been somewhat resolved about the affordability crisis, resolved in the fact that we're taking a pretty significant set of actions. W- what are we going to back that up with? Because we can put everything idea into statute, but if we don't enforce it, um, as much as Jason just alluded to, there are, are ways in which the local governments are going to avoid doing what, what the law commands them to do. And so how do we get more resources and bring those to bear on in, enforcement? And yes, we should talk about other incentives as well. It's got to be a carrot and a stick. But if the, you know, the last time the attorney general was involved in suing over a general plan. Well, right. Pleasanton was a big kind of landmark case when, uh, you know, then Jerry Brown was attorney general and took the lead on suing the city of Pleasanton to say, you know, you're not zoning for enough housing. You know, you're you're, you're picking these lands in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, and, and to date, I don't know how deficient they were for affordable housing, but it's huge. And that's like a big bedroom community to San Jose and to, you know, Silicon Valley and all of that. And so... You know, you realize that if there's a city that's not taking on their fair share of housing and at least trying, the thing is, and I agree with Jason, it's very hard for cities to say, you know, just because I have a housing element, that means all this housing is just going to somehow exactly. just, you know, be produced. Right. Right. And and I think that's a challenge, you know, and I recognize yes. that as a city because let me tell you, there are a lot of cities where I'll say, hey, did you know in your housing element you have these sites? And they're like, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Um, or you have all these things that you said you're going to do, like you're going to expedite this. You know, there's a lot of, you know, special sort of, you know, buy right types of languages in housing elements where they're like, they're going to do all these great things. And then you say, well, do it. And then they won't do it. You know, mm-hmm. and so you're like, hello, it's in your plan. And, you know, right. and developers, you don't want to come at the city with with legal papers saying we're going to sue you if you don't do this. And right. so you're, it's really a dance, which then takes a long time, adds to the risk and the complication. So um, and I think having the attorney general at least having shown some example that enforcement is possible and that they could win because I believe they won in the case of Pleasanton yeah. and Pleasanton opened up and they started looking at more sites for housing. And now it's it's more, you know, it can it can invite more housing, but you need to kind of have both sides. But it can't be the developer suing cities it becomes a challenge. Yeah. On the AG, if I could just a little bit more. I mean, I think we were very supportive of the AG, you know, enforcing existing law. I mean, we want our members to to follow the law. And if they're not, then there needs to be, you know, appropriate enforcement action. But I do think it is telling, though, that AB 72 contains no funding. And it's bestowing a ton of work on HCD to be this investigative arm Mm -hmm. of the AG's office when they do not have expertise in the Housing Accountability Act. Or, I mean, they might have it on housing on on our housing elements because they certify those. But we've bestowed a ton of work on on HCD. They're already deficient in PYs now in order to get PYs is a horrible thing to say. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) personnel here. Okay, they're deficient in labor at HCD. There we go. Thank you. They don't have enough people. They don't have enough people. people. So you know now. So this is our going to be our build together next year then, <laughs> yeah. then we're gonna yeah. go funding in the for budget. Right. so yeah. so now we're telling them to Done. do a bunch of other stuff so you know I, I don't i don't know how successful that's really going to be 
So I want to ask one, one more question. Uh, when a lot of the legislation gets passed, particularly a lot of pieces of legislation, there are always things that people don't intend that have become consequences of that. And I'm curious in, in your review, your folks' review of this, can you see any of those unintended consequences yet? And, and, uh, and what might they be? What are you scared of? <laughs> <laughs> it's good well, the city's guy laughed yeah, first. Right? You, guys guys laugh. Laugh. you know, there are lots of boogeymen out there, I think, for us. But I mean, um, one of the unintended consequences that I see is actually in one of Brian's bills that we are nearly <laughs> that we were nearly uh, to a point of, of being neutral on the bill. But um, AB thirteen ninety seven, some of our Lowe's bill around sites and identifying sites. I think it's it's gonna we can do it. The bill basically requires us to you know have more realistic and you know a, a, a demonstrable, redevelopable sites in our housing elements, and that's a really difficult analysis for us to do. Um, we're gonna be able to do the analysis. It's gonna take us time to do that analysis. Um, but it's also going to limit the number of sites that we're going to be able to have in our housing elements because we're only going to have so much bandwidth to do this analysis. And then in out years, we're not going to really be able to use those sites. So it, I think in the built-out communities or in communities where you have relatively few sites, it's going to be a challenge. Um, not that we can't do it, but I'm not so sure that um, in those instances it's going to help. But I think in some other jurisdictions, and there are good examples that Brian has indicated, um, where maybe some of the sites that we've identified probably aren't the best. Um, and 1397, I think, is going to push those jurisdictions to maybe identify some other sites that might be a little bit better. Um, so there could be a, a positive out of it. But, um, you know, I, I think it could lead to less sites, you know, more reliance on maybe bad sites in a built-out community. Um, we'll just see, have to see how it shakes out. I think that's an uh, interesting point. Although our, our concern um, and the reason that we worked on 1397 was we see a lot of cities that are complying with their housing element um, by pointing to locations that they say are going to be available for housing that aren't actually available. So our bill tightens that up. Are there going to be cities where um, they continue to sort of try to hide the ball and rely on sites that aren't developable? Yes. Um, my bigger concern overall about the package is not any one bill Having unintended consequences, I mean, I think there's been a lot of concern around SB 35, but I think in its final version, there's some cleanup that needs to happen, but it's in final version, I think, addressed a, a pretty significant number of the concerns. I think my concern is, as a package, and all of the um, discussion that's been had around this, that people are going to expect that something's going to change overnight. Like, this is not going to be like when we passed Obamacare and you know, a year or two later, a bunch of people who weren't covered are now covered. Like somebody asked me, a reporter, so for my story, can I say that people's rents are going to go down? Well, I know she was no. just trying to <laughs> mess with me, but right. No, is the answer. Uh, at least not immediately. I mean, this is a ship and it's a huge ship and we're turning it slowly. Right. So that's, I think, in terms of unintended consequences, the money that hopefully the voters approve in SB3, that will have some immediate impact on producing new units. But overall, it's going to take a while for this stuff to really have the impact that we need it to have. And so having a longer term vision and not getting frustrated and saying, well, 1397 didn't work because yeah. my rent didn't go down. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's not what this package is seeking to do. Yeah. And I would agree with that. That would, that would be my unintended consequence that the legislature thinks it done. Yeah. You know, that they checked the box. We did. It was a priority. It was a major priority along with other priorities this year in the legislature. But it's a priority. They they solved it. You know, everyone's going to take bows and pictures and there'll be signing parties and whatnot. And then, you know, and it will take time to filter down and it will take time. And, and if we don't have the funding, if, if SB3 does not pass and we don't have the bond, I think that it's going to be a huge negative and we're going to see, yeah, yeah. We're, we're not going to see any of these things work. The housing accountability, no one's going to care because they're not going to be building. And so, you know, I just think we need to really be realistic that what needs to really happen is more money. And I think I, I agree that we saw immediate results when we did Prop 46, um, mm -hmm. what is it, a decade or so yeah. ago? Prop, prop uh, under 1C. Schwarzenegger, 1C. Yeah. And, you know, we saw These things. Bonds and, yeah. Yeah, bonds. Last voter approved bonds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, could, we could track the amount of housing units. We can track the amount of jobs. I mean, there was a stimulus. There was yeah. a you know, multiplier effect. All these things were positive. And so I think, in, in my opinion, 
you know, it's wonderful that we have some new streamlining bills. We have some new accountability. We have all these sort of the framework to kind of create some enforcement now for the first time. But if we don't have the money that's going to fill the gaps for any kind of housing, we're even talking market rate housing, the housing that we want near transit, that's going to be denser, more expensive in more urbanized areas, all of that. We're going to see, and I'm not going to scare people, but it's going to be big numbers. We're going to see big numbers. It's going to cost a lot of money to build one unit in California because guess what? We now have GHGs to contend with, reducing our VMTs, vehicle miles traveled. We're going to have to, you know, we're going to be building greener than we've ever built before. By 2020, we're talking net zero energy. Our buildings are going to be essentially machines, and that is expensive. It's going to be wonderful for the residents who are going to pay 30 bucks a month in their utility bills, but the cost to build it and to engineer it and to get it all done, it's very expensive. Yeah. So on the flip side of it, and until you can kind of continue to put, frankly, you know, we made sausage here. I just don't see where the beef is yet. So if we need more beef and the sausage machine, so we're not just having a casing. Yeah. No, I, I think you, you said it perfect. are really <laughs> point. These are really good, yeah. yes. yes. I can have that sausage. sausage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree more with me. I mean, you know, the funding needs to be there. And, you know, I think one thing that, again, that we're really, we're, we're not looking at are really all the other costs that are, that are driving up um, and that are barriers to construction. I mean, it is, it seems almost limitless, the things that we apply to builders from the state's perspective, not necessarily just the local perspective. There's been a ton of emphasis on local barriers and the desire to remove those. We can remove them all. And, and we still have enormous costs that are placed on developers in order to get that property, you know, to market. And I think um, and there's there's and, and it's and, worse if you're an affordable developer. Yeah. The layers of policy and directives that make an affordable housing project, you know, go. It's tremendous. Yeah. And even in cities. And that's more than just affordability issues. It's 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 labor issues. It's environmental issues. It's sort of I've been. It's social yeah. justice. Like a, yeah. Right. Like a, like sort of like a Christmas tree is what I've been. Exactly. Told is a big, robust just, one. Right. Yes. Exactly. And we're just we'll look up. It's one ornament on that tree. But we might be the star on top. But, but you know. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it is a Christmas tree. But I think, you know, on the on the point of, of, of building, I mean, Sacramento is a great example. There was an article in the paper yesterday that talked about, you know, Central City in Sacramento. It is booming. We are building a ton of units. All, nearly all of these units are market rate, and they are starting like $1,400 a month. And in the next five to 10 years, with all of the approvals that have been, you know, already approved, um, we're looking at, I think it was like five or 6% are going to be affordable. Everything else is is just market rates. So, I mean, even with a ton of construction, rents are going to continue to rise. Home prices are going to continue to rise. So, um, you know, I, I don't know how we address all the other costs that are associated with development. I mean, it seems as though, at least in the central city, we can't build our way out or to affordability. Um, so there, there, I think there needs to be a, a closer look at some of those costs. And I know me talks a lot about infill. I mean, there are lots of or, or infrastructure associated with infill sites. I mean, um, I think there are ways that the state can help subsidize and bring those costs down for everybody. But at the end of the day, though, we still need to compel it developer to lower the price of that unit um and i don't know how we do that all right you got anything else nothing else okay um i think that's it thanks so much for uh coming out yeah this has been great yeah Yeah, it's a lot of fun thanks for having us all right